From Northwest Public Broadcasting, I'm Scott Leadingham. I'm Hannah Wisnett. And I'm Matt Loveless, and this is how we ended up here. And here on the doorstep of the Washington primary election, if you're registered, you should already have ballots. Maybe you've already sent them back. Those ballots need to be postmarked by August 4th. But first, we have some new voices on the podcast. Matt, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I would. Thank you, Scott. I've been working up to the election with NWPB's Vote 2020 coverage, including hosting various candidate forums, also helping produce this very podcast. I'm going to be involved with the run-up to the election, including work on an election night special in November. I also teach journalism courses at Washington State University. And lastly, I'm just a curious voter. A little bit of my background, I last voted in a presidential election in Washington back in 2004. So I'm still catching up on some of the changes that have happened uh, since I left and have been voting elsewhere. And also joining us today, our co-worker, Hannah. Welcome, Hannah. Hi, Scott and Matt. I'm looking forward to... Yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more about Washington's election system because I live in Idaho, so I don't know that much about Washington state politics because I can't vote in Washington. So I haven't really been paying attention, but I do work in Washington. So I think it's important to find out what's going on, especially in 2020 when it seems like there's so many changes happening. It's interesting because you're just across the border, two states with very different primary systems. And we wanted to learn a little bit more about Washington's, which is a top two primary. Some of you may have heard that term. Um, Our hope is that if you haven't heard that term and you're hearing it for the first time, we're here to help you uh, learn a little bit about it, what it means, how it affects candidates, campaigns, and some of the intended and unintended consequences of this process. And for those of you who are here voting for the first time, or if you just need a refresher, a top two primary sends the two candidates with the most votes onto the general election ballot, regardless of their party. So in simple terms, you could be choosing between two Democrats or two Republicans for the same state or county position come November. And I didn't even know it was a thing. Sounds like it could be a bit chaotic. Well, uh, it, it, it can be. You're right, as a lot of elections can be. So we sought out a little expert perspective on this topic. Throughout today's episode, we're going to hear from Michael Ritter, who is a political scientist and His area of focus is in political methodology. He's also an instructor at WSU's School of Politics, Philosophy, and Public Affairs. And here's your first fun fact. Washington is one of just three states, along with California and Nebraska, that hold a top two primary like this. And to be honest, it was that fun fact that sort of got us started on this conversation. We're, it's a very rare form of a primary. Mr. Ritter did give us some really good information, though, basically breaking down some of the key differences, not just in the process, but in the way candidates have to approach a primary campaign like this. It's really interesting. I'm here today uh, to try to break things down in layman terms a little bit. So let's get started. A true to the title of the podcast, Matt, how did we end up here? Okay, well, this is uh, how it used to be pre-2000. Uh, Much more familiar if you're a voter across the country, we had a partisan blanket primary, but the way they did it was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. We'll have more on that in a moment. Uh, Michael Ritter broke down how we did it under the old system. Under the blanket primary that existed in Washington State from 1935 to 2000, individuals would vote on a very similar primary ballot, similar to what we have today, but the top candidate um, from each party uh, was guaranteed a spot on the general election ballot. 
And basically the Supreme Court decided that was unconstitutional because uh, it, it robbed the political parties uh, of the ability to select their nominees. Wait, what? This seems backwards. Wouldn't they want each party to be represented on a general election ballot? Isn't that the point? It, uh, it, this is a really bad answer. Sort of. And bear with me because there are layers to this in many primary processes. And let's just pick the one we're most familiar with, the presidential primary. The parties, whether through caucuses, a primary election, along with the national conventions, of course, meet to choose the candidate who they want to represent their party. That seems like the prerogative for the parties. Yes. In fact, episode two of our podcast sort of went into a little more detail on the primary selection process. But under the old system, someone could simply, at least in Washington state, identify themselves as a Republican or a Democrat and win a primary without the blessing of the party. And so what you're saying, Matt, is someone could run as a Democrat, but be aligned more with Republican ideologies in a strange but sort of strategic move for this sort of election system. Yeah, and it is strange. And yes, theoretically, that's correct. And while I'm not sure if or when has some, somebody has actually tried this out, the state Supreme Court decided it was a violation of this freedom of association provision in the First Amendment by stripping power away from the parties. But so the way, I, the way I'm hearing you is that the top two primary doesn't seem to necessarily empower the parties, though, because it's possible one of the major parties is entirely shut out of a general election. Yeah, that's true. And my sense, though, is that it accomplishes a couple of things. One, it gives more weight to the candidate and the campaign. In fact, campaign rhetoric is quite a bit different. We'll have a little bit more on that later. Well, and it also seems like you'd have a little more power as a voter. Definitely. And Ritter found some research that shows voter turnout is higher in top two primaries, a little bit higher, but higher. And second place in a party's primary boots you from most general election ballots. In Washington, that could help you get to the general. So if you're a voter of a certain party, you feel like you have maybe a little more say in the process. Or if you're a member of an underrepresented party in a county or state, you're probably a little more motivated to vote for your candidate because there are no guarantees. Yeah, exactly. And I should note, parties, of course, can still nominate. They can still caucus. You can still put your candidate on the ballot. But this is a reason you'll see the phrasing prefers Republican Party on the ballot as opposed to just simply Republican. Right. And I'm actually looking at uh, the ballot right now, the primary ballot, which has a lot of those prefers a Republican, but then there's also like prefer 2016 Republican Party or the Trump Republican Party. So it's sort of a, a mix of people's ideologies inside of there. And there's a lot of talk about Republicans and Democrats so far. But what I've seen on the ballot in, in this race for governor, like I was just saying, 36 candidates and more than a dozen party preferences. This this race in particular for governor this year doesn't seem to mesh well with the top two system. Yeah, there's truth to that. But you think about a general election ballot with 14 different candidates, each representing, each being the winner of a party, it'd be kind of a messy ballot. And it would, I mean, it's more than we would see in a normal primary. So what about some of the other parties we often see on a ballot like independence? Yeah, that's, the, that's kind of the big question on this topic, for independence in particular. In short, they don't like it. And you can imagine when two parties hold all the power and you only get two people to the general, they feel shut out. In fact, 
Here's part of a conversation I had with a libertarian candidate named Ryan Cooper during a recent forum. In most states, I would be on the general election ballot because each party gets to pick their own nominee. Only in Washington do I have to compete in a primary and then not have to get the chance to even be on the ballot when everybody else votes. I think you can kind of hear some of his frustration there. You really could. Uh, you could at the time, too, especially on these crowded ballots with five or six for the primary. Some are just begging, just vote for me now so that I at least have a chance to convince you that I'm a good candidate in the general. So that so that I'm getting a sense of the way it technically works. Um, but with so much power held by the two major parties, is there any real opportunity for third party candidates? Because it seems like the support system for both Republicans and Democrats is so strong. Like, does it even matter if the independents are in the race or other people? Yeah, that doesn't matter question is sort of a subtext in this whole conversation. Um, but I'd focus here on the word opportunity. Uh, and here's some numbers for you. There was a study by Richard Winger. Uh, election experts probably know his name. He's actually challenged the top two primary in court here in Washington. He said that of 718 races in Washington and California in which there was a third party candidate and two major party candidates, that third party candidate has advanced to the general just two times. That's out of 718. All right. All right. I, I'm, I'm no mathematician by far. In fact, I'm a journalist and they say uh, journalists uh, hate math. It's the opposite. Right. Right. But that is fairly close to zero percent. Yeah. I, I pulled out my calculator. It's actually much closer to zero than one percent. But Ritter also said that while it may limit a third party candidate's potential to win, Washington's primary system does allow for more candidates to at least have the chance to appear on a primary ballot. In one sense, because of the uh, larger club, the two major parties, the top two primary system kind of further accentuates that uh, built-in major party advantage in the U.S. political system. But on, the other stand, on the, but on the other hand, because of the candidate filing requirements uh, in the state of Washington and the ability of candidates of a variety of political backgrounds to register themselves to be in contestation for an election, uh, that arguably offers uh, an avenue of access for third-party candidates. Right, though that, that still doesn't seem like much of a consolation prize. It doesn't, and if you ask me, in my opinion, this effectively does shut out third-party candidates. I mean, we sort of just showed you the data to back that up. We just get a busier primary ballot, case in point, that governor's race you were just talking about. And we're going to take a quick break. We'll pick it up from there right after this. This episode of How We Ended Up Here is supported by members of Northwest Public Broadcasting. If you've ever watched a construction crew pour a foundation for a home or office, you realize how important that concrete base is. It's what gives the building its stability. Like that concrete, monthly supporters provide a strong foundation for Northwest Public Broadcasting. Dollar by dollar, your donations are an ongoing and reliable income that pays for all your favorite programs and podcasts. Become a monthly supporter for just $5 or $10 a month. You'll be rewarded by knowing your contribution is the cement that makes NWPB your home for your favorite programs. Join today at nwpb.org. So you mentioned earlier, Matt, something about campaign strategy and without a guarantee for the parties. Any of the parties, it makes sense that you have to work a little harder to appeal for voters. 
even if you are a member of a major party. Yeah, let's just say it, it, it makes less sense to be on either political extreme. Yeah, right, it does. And that, but that feels sort of counter to the trends we've seen on a national level. Often the loudest voices are those on the, the far left and the far right. Louder and thus more effective in many ways, as we've seen. We don't have time in this particular podcast to talk about how that has contributed to our political discourse, so we won't. But from an election strategy standpoint, stronger ideological messaging has worked pretty well for candidates in those types of primaries. They can construct their uh, messaging based on only, you know, what are, what are the interests of strong Republicans or Democrats in that state? Whereas in Washington state, uh, a political candidate can't take that for granted. And here's an example of what he's talking about. The topic of DACA and Dreamers, very political topic there. DACA, of course, is deferred action for childhood arrivals, protection for undocumented immigrants who came here as children. That issue, while complicated in its own way among the parties, has faced its strongest opposition among Republicans, notably President Trump's effort to phase it out and the legal challenges that have followed that. So here's a rhetorical question. Is it wise for a Republican in, say, Yakima County, Benton County, Franklin County, to run on a strong anti-immigration platform, particularly if there are two DACA-supporting Democrats on the ballot? So they're more likely to soften language and rhetoric on topics that tend to be debated more hotly. Right. And I'm wondering which one is more authentic there. And I sh we should note that, you know, Yakima, Franklin, Benton counties, the Tri-Cities region uh, of Washington have some of the highest numbers of DACA recipients uh, in the entire country. So it's a very, very DACA heavy area. Yeah, and that was why it came up as a topic of conversation in a recent forum with that we partnered with the League of Women Voters in Benton and Franklin counties. We saw much more softened language, much more moderate views about DACA and you asked about authenticity, and that's a fair question. I'm not sure authenticity has been the hallmark of many political campaigns, but of course that's up for voters to decide. Okay, then, so I wonder, how much different is it? Is there any way to quantify the differences? Is there any data or research that suggests this is substantially different than the other types of primaries? Yeah, there are several counties that have been able to advance to candidates of the same party. There's actually only one statewide example in Washington of two people from the same party. That was the 2016 treasurer's race. It pitted two Republicans against each other, Dwayne Davidson and Michael Waite. Davidson won, and he's actually up for re-election again. That's our only example of this top two fundamentally changing the ballot for a statewide general election. Adding to that, uh, the idea of an election is to build at least some form of consensus, finding the candidate most people agree upon. Is that still not the same? Yeah, well, what I'm hearing is that that's the intent of not just this, but a number of election policy and process changes that have happened here just in the last few years for a couple of them. And as Ritter described it, the top two primary is just one small part of a continually evolving election system, and that includes a number of other things such as reforms targeted against gerrymandering or, you know, reforms such as uh, Washington State recently adopting same-day registration uh, within the last year or two. You have to consider top two, the top two primary system in conjunction with, with these other elements of the state's election administration and voting system to get a true understanding of its impact. So more to the point, it seems like 
a majority of the major parties have continued to throw their support to a candidate. Party organizations continue to try and get consensus among the party. And largely, that's continued to be the most effective way to get a candidate on the general. Right. And so in the grand scheme of things, the experts believe processes may be different, but really outcomes likely haven't been affected, which I think is really the, the main point of this. It's we're concerned about the outcome. Who cares about how, the, how we get there? Right. Ultimately, well, we care about how we get there because right. <laughs> uh, that's the name of this podcast. No, you're right in that ultimately we're, we're here to pick a winner. The primary is about dwindling it down. Here's my sports analogy. I'm a uh, sports fan. So think about the four teams that get into the college football playoff. And yet we often agonize about the teams ranked fifth and sixth in college basketball. You know, it's, it's a 68 team field and we're worried about the 69th and 70th teams as if they're going to contend for the championship. They're on that bubble. So the goal here, of course, is to find a winner, not to appease candidates who missed that bubble in the end as a sports fanatic. That's sort of how I make sense of this system. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So some of the pros are you get better voter turnout uh, normally and yep. fewer hyper-partisan primaries. But some of the cons are third-party candidates have even less of a chance than they might have had in another state and even more major parties and even major parties have the potential to be shut out. It's very interesting in that way and uh, sounds about right. And I'll just cut to one more piece of analysis from Mr. Ritter. I, I mentioned just two other states, California and Nebraska, offer their own versions of the top two primary. And so I asked him, why haven't more states done this? Parties don't want to lose too much control over being able to select nominees that reflect the party's ideals and priorities. Parties don't want to lose too much control. So it all boils down to control. And I, I should note before we sign off here, not everybody likes this top two system. There are continuing challenges of it. Um, but as we had mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, the state sort of defends it as this part of a larger election plan and process in the state of Washington. It all comes down to control, like you said, Matt. But I thought this was all about democracy. Jeez, like <laughs> it's not quite so cut and dried. No, it's not. <laughs> No, I guess not. Well, that does it for this episode of How We Ended Up Here. Don't forget, you do have control over your vote. Ballots for the Washington primary need to be postmarked or returned to a county drop box by 8 p.m. on Tuesday, August 4th. And thanks for listening. And hey, thanks for joining us today, Hannah. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Matt. And our thanks to Michael Ritter from the WSU School of Politics, Philosophy, and Public Affairs. Additional contributions thanks to the help of the Benton Franklin League of Women Voters. More election news and insights are at the Vote 2020 page of nwpb.org. For Northwest Public Broadcasting's How We Ended Up Here, I'm Matt Loveless.